Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Have you heard people saying that there is an American Taliban? Have you heard people comparing certain political groups in this country to the Taliban in Afghanistan? Of all people, a four-star general by the name of Michael Hayden. Now, he's long been retired. He retired uh, back in about 2005. But after that, this four-star general became the director of the CIA and also was high up the food chain in NSA as well. Well, earlier this week, he retweeted a tweet that said, well, it showed a picture of the Taliban in Afghanistan. And then it said our Taliban here. And it was the a picture of a Trump rally. Now, I can't understand how a four-star general, a head of the CIA, uh, a man who worked at NSA, could actually make such a comparison. In fact, as we saw tragically last week, there were people clinging themselves to a jet to get out of Afghanistan. They would rather kill themselves than live under Taliban law. Do you know anyone clinging to a jet to get into Afghanistan? No, you don't. Do you know anyone clinging to a jet to get out of the United States? No, you don't. Why would a general say such a thing? And in a few minutes, Bill Federer is going to join me again to discuss this. And we're going to be commercial free in this radio program and podcast because we have a lot to cover on this issue of the Taliban and the so-called American Taliban. But we're going to spend most of our time looking at the Taliban itself, the real Taliban, and uh, bring some clarity to how the Taliban got to where it is now and what we ought to try and do uh, to oppose what they are trying to do, not only in Afghanistan, but around the world. Now, Taliban means students. That's what the word means. And these people are students of the Quran and the Hadith. The Hadith are the written traditions of what Muhammad allegedly said and did. Now, these students study the Quran and the Hadith, and they conclude that the kind of barbarism that you've seen displayed, unfortunately, on TV is the right kind of behavior in which to engage. Now, let me ask you this question, ladies and gentlemen. See if President Trump or President Biden, for that matter, has done any of the things that the Taliban has done or does now. They murder women who don't wear the right clothes. They throw gays off of buildings. They conduct public executions. They conduct or allow suicide bombings. They sell women and children as sex slaves. They force children and women and single women into marriages. They conduct child slavery. They murder Christians and Muslims who disagree with them. They execute Muslims who convert to Christianity or leave Islam. They deal drugs. They sell opium. That's how they raise their money. They amputate hands or arms for stealing. They impose Sharia law. 
wherever they take over. Now, ladies and gentlemen, how do these people in any way compare to any party here in the United States? For a four-star general or any rational person in America to equate Trump supporters with the Taliban is beyond idiotic and outrageous. And it speaks to the fact that Trump derangement system or syndrome must be real. I mean, how do you lose perspective so much that you would say such a thing? Now, there's a lot of blame to go around with the current state in Afghanistan. From Trump negotiating with these people, terrorists, something he never should have done, to Biden not holding the Taliban to their agreement, and then thinking he could use these people for security of American soldiers, citizens, and Afghan workers. In fact, Biden virtually admitted a couple of days ago that he gave the Taliban a list of names of Americans and Afghans who helped us. This is essentially a kill list. And this was actually posted on Politico, not a a conservative site. How can this be? How can the president of the United States or his administration actually give a list of Americans in Afghanistan and Afghans who helped us a list of who these people are? Now, as you know, ladies and gentlemen, Romans 13 gives the primary responsibility of government to protect innocent people from evil. And sometimes you have to use force to protect innocent people from evil. We live in a fallen world and sometimes force is necessary. Tragically, it appears the Biden administration is doing exactly the opposite tactically. They are putting people in harm's way by giving the names of people of Americans and Afghan people who helped us over there, giving them their names. It is a fundamental misunderstanding of who these people are. In order to protect people, you have to know who your enemy is. Who are the people that want to hurt innocent people? What do they believe? What motivates them? And it appears to me that this administration, and even partially the Trump administration, and Obama, the Obama administration, and maybe even the Bush administration, they do not or did not or do not now understand who the Taliban are. They don't understand jihad. They don't understand what motivates them. Every one of the people from Bush to Obama to Trump to Biden and all of their underlings, when they take an oath, to take their office, they take an oath, and by the way, this is what the oath we take in the military, to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. The question is, do these people, do any of these people understand that the Taliban and what they believe is exactly opposite to virtually everything in the United States Constitution? And there is no better person to talk about this than my guest from last week, Bill Federer, And if you haven't listened to last week's show, you've got to go back and listen to it. Uh, The program, uh, Bill covered a a 30,000-foot scope of history. We call that show A History of Tyranny. And now what he's going to help us do is understand who the Taliban are, uh, what the Quran teaches, what the Hadith teaches, what jihadists believe. And this comes from his book, What Every American Needs to Know About the Quran, A History of Islam and the United States. As always, it's great having Bill Federer on the program. Bill, how are you? Hey, it's great to be with you, Frank. Yeah, Sorry you had to endure that long intro, but I had to just say that and set this up. It's hard for me to believe that a four-star general or that a president of the United States would think that somehow the Taliban are our friends. 
What do the Taliban believe, Bill, and how does it how does it compare to the United States Constitution? Well, uh, a little background. Uh, it was the Soviet-Afghan war where the CIA, it's called Operation Cyclone, our CIA armed the terrorists. They armed the Taliban, the Mujahideen, with Stinger missiles so they could shoot down Soviet planes, 1979, 1989. And, um, and then, so we have a track record of arming the Taliban and mm -hmm. uh, even arming ISIS, Hillary Clinton, uh, the news was all over that as Secretary of State, she was funneling guns to Benghazi and then funneling those guns over to Syria to arm ISIS. And uh, then we have a track record with Eric Holder, uh, an attorney general, funneling guns to terrorist gangs, uh, drug gangs in Mexico. And so there's a lot that has to be explained. Uh, but Obama did let the head of the Taliban out of Guantanamo Bay the very one who has been organizing what's going on over there. And you either have an unbelievable incompetence of letting $85 billion worth of arms go into the hands of the enemy, 600,000 weapons. I talked to someone who'd been in the military, and they said the first thing you evacuate is Americans and then allies to Americans who've been working with us, and then all your assets and records and, and so forth that... Uh, they said, if you cannot evacuate the weapons, you blow them up. Mm -hmm. You don't leave them for the enemy. So this seems like uh, Biden's dementia is just a guise, uh, a, a convenient thing to blame for a return to the Obama era policies of arming the Islamist terrorists. You know, there's a new Los Angeles Times headline. I took a screenshot of it. Uh, it said, uh, terrorist groups armed by the CIA fight the terrorist groups armed by the Pentagon, right? This was back mm -hmm. under the Obama era. And then it says Trump ended the plan of us arming uh, these different uh, Islamic insurgent groups that was going on under Obama. Uh, so uh, there's some questions that need to be answered. But as far as the motivation, uh, we have to go back to the beginning. Now, I, I do, by the way, throw in one more thing. It was Operation Cyclone, 1979-1989, uh, in which the CIA was arming the uh, Afghan uh, terrorists. Uh, it, they turned it into a, into a movie. It's called Charlie Wilson's War. It mm. stars Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts. I mean, this is, and it's the biggest covert operation the CIA has revealed that they've been a part of. And so they called it Charlie Wilson's War. I think it would be good for people to just watch that, to see that the headlines and the story that you're being fed is not always what's actually happening on the ground. Bill, but, we, might, we, we, we might understand why uh, we did that in the 70s because the enemy of our enemy might be our friend. That I, you, you might see some logic behind this, but why would somebody like Obama want to arm ISIS? Where does that come from? Right. They definitely wanted to have a different strategy in the Middle East of isolating Israel and uh, siding. Obama has a track record of wanting to side with the more Islamist elements. Um, but when these things happen, there are those in the mainstream media that defend um, fundamental Islam and say, well, what, what they're doing is, is, is the killing in the streets. That's not true Islam. 
Mm. But often the people doing the killing in the streets uh, are quoting the Quran and yes. yelling Allahu Akbar, and they claim that they do represent true Islam. So the big question is, who can tell us what true Islam is? One person, Muhammad. He was the perfect Muslim. His life is called the Way or the Sunnah. And so uh, if we examine his life, we see it goes through three stages. He was a religious leader. Then he transitions to a political leader. And then he transitions to a military leader. So Muhammad's born in 570 A.D. And his uh, father dies before he's born. His mother dies when he's six. His grandfather and guardian dies when he's eight. So he's orphaned, taken in by an uncle, Abu Talib, who's a merchant and goes on camel rides to different cities. Muhammad hears about the different religions, some of the Jewish faith, some of the Zoroastrian, Persian faith, some of the pagan, uh, and some of the Christian, and then even some of the heretical Christian. And he uh, there's elements of each of these that appear in his uh, new faith. Matter of fact, uh, the Zoroastrians were known for, for centuries pre-Muhammad uh, of teaching that paradise was filled full of virgins that would fulfill all the guy's desires. And um, So Muhammad goes into Mecca and he begins to preach and he only makes 70 converts in 12 years. Mm. And then he gets confrontational. And then the people of Mecca decide he's a disturber of the peace. They chase him out of town. Tries to go into a city called Al-Taif. They don't want him. They pelt him with rocks and stones, chase him out of town, and jeer him. So in a sense, he is the original Muslim refugee. In the year 622 AD, he migrates north to a Jewish city called Medina. The Jews are nice. They let Muhammad in as a Muslim immigrant. He goes into the minority neighborhoods in Medina, and he organizes a following amongst the pagans that were there, and they convert and follow him. And when his following, we're familiar with the term of organizing in the community. When his following gets big enough, he goes to the Jewish leaders, pressures them to accommodate him and his new followers politically. The Jews do and make a treaty, so now Muhammad's a political leader. And then when Muhammad's followers back in Mecca get confrontational, they get chased out of town for disturbing the peace. Now there are a lot of Muslim refugees. They migrate north. The Jews in Medina let them in as a lot of Muslim immigrants. And Muhammad allows them to rob the caravans headed back to Mecca in retaliation for the Meccans chasing them out of town. So where Jesus said, if they take your coat, give them your shirt, love your enemies, pray for those that do. Muhammad's attitude was, if they take your house, you retaliate, take their caravan. And so he had 300 uh, warriors and they would rob caravans. And he got a fifth of the booty. That was his percentage. And, um, and he did things differently. So these pagans had multiple pagan deities, and they had a month off where they agreed not to fight, sort of a gentleman's agreement. Muhammad gets verses from his Allah instructing him to rob the caravans in this month off, catches them totally by surprise, comes away with a lot of booty. The Meccans send um, a thousand soldiers to protect their caravan. Muhammad defeats them at the Battle of Badra. And then uh, in 627 AD, the Meccans send 10,000 soldiers to Medina. And Muhammad, turns out, it was a very creative military leader. He uh, dug potholes and trenches all around the city of Medina, which rendered the superior cavalry of the Meccans useless. You can't charge your horses and camels across a field full mm -hmm. of potholes and trenches, you know, right? They'll break their legs. So it throws off the battle strategy. Muhammad goes to some of the tribes at night, and he uh, bribes them, and they slip away. He goes to some of the other tribes at night, and he threatens them, and they slip away. And then it gets freezing cold for a week, and the rest of the tribes lose heart and retreat. And 
this set a precedent in Islam. When your enemy uh, is strong, you wait. And then when your enemy is weak, you attack. And so now that the enemy is left, he's emboldened. He goes back into the Jewish city of Medina, and there's no one that can come to their rescue. And so he gets offended at one of the Jewish tribes. There were three different Jewish tribes there. Uh, he confiscates their property, chases them out of town. Gets offended at a second Jewish tribe, confiscates their property, chases them out of town. The third Jewish tribe, the Hadith, says that he was taking a bath and a spirit appeared to him and said, how can you rest when Allah's enemies are in your midst? He said, where? And it pointed at that last Jewish neighborhood. He surrounded him for about a month and then brought him into the market, chopped off the heads of the men and sold the women and children into slavery. So within five years of Muhammad coming into the Jewish city of Medina, there's not a Jew left in the city of Medina. They were chased out, killed, or enslaved. And within five years of Muhammad's death, every pre-existing culture in Arabia is wiped out. And then in the next 50 years, the rightly guided caliphs conquer Jerusalem, which had been a Byzantine mm -hmm. Christian city. They conquer Syria, which had been completely Christian for six centuries, evangelized by the Apostle Paul. The name Christian was first used in Syria. And then they conquer Egypt. Egypt had been completely Christian for six centuries, evangelized by Mark that wrote the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, but there was a religious division where the Byzantine Christians were persecuting the Coptic Christians. The word Coptic is the Egyptian word for Egyptian. And the uh, Muslim warriors appear on the border and say, we'll help you drive out those terrible Byzantines. And the Coptic say, sure, come on in. Well, they drive them out and then they decide to stay and then they decide they're going to take over. And the stories that are passed down, some of them are pretty shocking, where they cut out the tongues of any Egyptians caught speaking the Coptic language because Arabic was the uh, divine language. And, and then there used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa in the 7th century. Morocco, Algiers, Tunisia, Libya, it was all Christian. St. Augustine of Hippo was from Carthage. Today that's Tunisia. And so... Um, then in the year 711, they invade Spain. And the Muslims have a military advantage called the stirrup, uh, sort of like uh, the Taliban have a military advantage now as compared to surrounding nations. But uh, with this stirrup, it allowed them full control of the horse in battle. Uh, prior to then, you would have soldiers riding horses, but they uh, wouldn't have anything to put their feet in. And then the Muslims had... Scimitar swords. This was Damascus steel, a new invention where they would hammer these things over and over again until they became thinner and thinner and stronger and stronger, like a razor blade. So they could hold the reins of a horse in one hand and this light scimitar sword in the other. And at a full gallop, they literally could slice their enemy in half while the Europeans are on foot with these heavy mm. metal swords. So in 10 years, they conquer all of Spain. Uh, mm. They landed, the, the Muslim Umayyad leader was Tariq, and he landed at a mountain on the coast of Spain. And so the... Not Tariq, Tariq. Yes, go ahead. Correct. <laughs> uh, there you go. And, uh, and so the Arabic word for mountain was Jabal. So they called it Jabal Tariq, or as mm -hmm. the years went on, Gibraltar. And, uh, but, it, but they conquered Spain in 10 years destroyed thousands of churches, killed thousands of people, put thousands into slavery. Spain had all these different kingdoms, and they all fought each other. And uh, then they crossed the Pyrenees Mountains, and they conquered southern France, and they're finally stopped outside of Paris at the Battle of Tours in 732 AD. 
exactly 100 years after the death of Muhammad in 632 AD. They go from Arabia to Paris in a 100-year military campaign. And since this is the first century of Islam, the Mujahideen, the renewer of the faith, the Taliban, the students of Islam, the Boko Haram, the fundamental Muslims look back to this century as their perfect example, the same way that Christians look to the first century Christians as the ideal Christians. They were the closest to Jesus and the apostles. They had the pure Christian faith, right? And we're always striving to get back to that. Well, the fundamental Muslims feel a motivation to strive to get back to this first century of Islam. And um, But uh, Pope Gregory puts out a plea that anybody that could fight should join Charles Martel. And so he uh, has this battle of Tours. It's an interesting battle, 732 AD. Uh, there's about a uh, Charles Martel didn't want to stand in the valley and get sliced up like uh, the Battle of Bordeaux, where <laughs> in one charge they wiped out the whole Frankish army. So he put his army on top of a hill, 30,000 guys just off the farm, all on foot, puts them in a square, and uh, then waits. And the, uh, you know, the Muslim leader, Abdul Rahman, keeps waiting for him to come down. They don't. So he gets tired. He charges. But he's charging uphill, and he can't see past the line. And his men charge in and get stuck because it's 30,000 guys packed together in one square. And then Martel had arranged for some of his men to sneak into the Muslim camp and free the captives, the, the booty. And uh, they fought for religion, but they also fought for plunder. Muhammad said you can have four wives plus as many extra women as your right hand possesses, as many as you take in battle. And so this was another, the sultan got a fifth. That was his portion of the, so many sultans had a thousand wives in their harem. Um, but uh, so, so these warriors leave the fighting to reclaim their booty. And the commander, Abdul Rahman, uh, tries to rally his men back. And he's yelling at him. He gets distracted. He gets killed. And now the other Muslim warriors cannot decide who's going to be their next commander. And they decide to pick up with their booty and go back to Spain, figuring they can come back whenever they want. Well, that was the Battle of Tours, uh, just 100 years after Muhammad's death. And then Charles Martel gets every horse he can find, learns how to make a stirrup, learns how to fight on horseback. And five years later, they win their first battle. And it takes 700 years of battles to drive the mm. Islamic occupiers out of Spain. Back and, over the uh, Straits of Gibraltar. Right. right, and, uh, Northern and then they come around the other side of the Mediterranean and they attack Constantinople. The mm -hmm. Greeks have a military advantage called Greek fire, where they take oil and sawdust and mix it in these uh, hot oil cannons and spray it out with a torch in front, sort of like napalm. And, uh, and so the Muslims decide that they have conquered all that they're going to conquer in that direction. They still continue to conquer into Africa and into Persia and across Central Asia. But as far as Europe goes, they put it on pause and they figure they're just going to have to wait and conquer it later. And so this began to develop the two strains of Islam. The hmm. first strain is, uh, it's important to get some definitions in here. The word Islam means submission to the will of Allah. Right. A Muslim is one who has submitted to the will of Allah. And they think there will be world peace when the whole world submits to the will of Allah. So is that what they mean when they say Islam is a religion of peace? We just need to submit to Islam and then everyone will live at peace. Is that it, Bill? Right. So when your enemies are defeated, there's nobody left to fight. So there's <laughs> peace. Right. It's, 
by um, definition, it's going to be peaceful. Hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening. To, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist with Frank Turk. My guest is the great Bill Federer, and his book is called What Every American Needs to Know About the Quran, A History of Islam uh, and the United States. And before I get back to Bill, what we're going to do is uh, mention that you, you think about all this evil that's not just been done this week in Afghanistan, but goes all the way back for hundreds of years, as Bill has been pointing out. A lot of war, a lot of jihad, a lot of evil committed, not just by Muslims, but even Christians commit evil, as we know we all do. The question is, why does God allow it? Why does God allow evil? And Clay Jones, who's an amazing professor on this topic, is going to be teaching an online course this week that you can join. And if you join the premium version, you'll be on Zooms with Clay. Just go to crossexamine.org and click on online courses. You'll see why does God allow evil? You're going to want to be a part of that course because this is such a big question that Christians must answer. And in fact, only Christians can answer it adequately, in my view anyway. So check out that course with Dr. Clay Jones. I also want to mention this weekend, uh, Lord willing, I'll be at Calvary Chapel San Jose tonight if you're listening to this on Saturday. And uh, all the details are on our website, 6 p.m. tonight there on the West Coast. And then tomorrow morning, Sunday, uh, I will be, that's the 29th of August, I will be at uh, South Valley Community Church in Gilroy, the garlic capital of the world, a couple of services there, and then one in Hollister as well. So check the calendar for that, crossexamine.org and events, and you will see it there. Okay, Bill, let's go back to what you were talking about with Islam. We were going through a couple of definitions about what Islam is, and the, you were talking about the separation uh, or the, the, the I, I guess, for lack of a better term, the different denominations of Islam. Were you about to get into that when, when I had to interrupt you there? Go ahead. Yeah, basically it's now versus later. Uh, but the, uh, the word peace is one that has a different definition. Our definition of peace is different groups getting along. Mm -hmm. Their definition of world peace is world Islam. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I was reading a quote of Lincoln in 1864 during the Civil War. Lincoln said, we all declare for liberty. But in using the same word, we do not all mean the same thing. Right? The, the South says liberty. It's get those federal troops out. The North says liberty. It's free the slaves. But they're both saying we want liberty. Right? And so it's right. the same way with the word peace. We want peace. They want peace. But when we want peace, it's different groups getting along. When they say peace, it's the whole world submitting to the will of Allah. Now, a the world in Islam is divided into the half that has submitted and the half that's in the process of submitting. The half that has submitted is called the Dar al-Islam, the house of submission, the house of Islam. The half that's in the process of submitting is called the Dar al-Harb, the house of war. Mm. So the non-Muslim world is the house of war. It's supposed to be at war because it's in the process of being brought into submission. Now, this is the, the point that I wanted to make. A moderate Muslim... Most Muslims are moderate. A moderate Muslim thinks the world is going to submit to Allah later. Maybe at the mm. end of the world. Maybe it's figurative. And since it's so far off, they really don't think about it. They just want to live their lives, have their families, and you know, be friends with you and everyone else. The fundamental Muslim, the ISIS Muslim, the Taliban Muslim, uh, the Boko Haram Muslim, they think the world is supposed to submit to Allah now. And they're really excited and they want to help make it happen. And then you add to this a foundational concept, 
and that's when your enemy is strong, you retreat and bide your time. When your enemy is weak, that's Allah telling you it's time to attack. Mm. It, it's sort of the law of nature, right? If if you're having a barbecue and you've uh, you know you're there and there's some dogs, you know, sort of at uh, the periphery, uh, as long as you're strong and you're there, they'll keep their distance. But if you say, "Oh, I forgot something in the car," and you leave it all there, and go, they're going to attack, right? Uh, they're mm. going to take your your barbecue. And so the I concept is when the West shows itself strong, historically, they've gone into periods of being more moderate. We have that after they were stopped at the Battle of Tours. They sort of consolidated and, and then they, they became less, less conquest-minded. And that's what is labeled the Golden Age of Islam. So they just started to... Now, it's important to understand that the Muslims didn't pay taxes. The conquered people paid the taxes. And so they were living off that wealth and... But, uh, and then after the Battle of uh, Lepanto, when the largest battle in the Mediterranean, they were defeated. Well, they, they had their entire navy destroyed. Yeah, they, they had to go through a period of peace because they didn't have any more boats. And, uh, and then after uh, World War I, the Ottoman Empire was disbanded. Mm-hmm. And the Muslim world thought, well, I guess all of our dreams of conquering the world are over. And they started to want to westernize. And, um, and it was that way until Standard Oil Company discovered oil in Saudi Arabia in 1938. And Saudi Arabia went from the poorest Muslim country to the richest Muslim country. And because it was the most fundamental with their chop-chop square, um, where they would chop off arms and legs. And, and so they were the most fundamental Muslim and the richest. And it became a magnet for fundamentalism. But, but whenever the West shows itself strong, they go into a period of remission. Whenever the West shows itself weak... They feel that's Allah telling them to attack. I actually you talked to... Go ahead. I was going to say, you don't prevent a war through weakness, and this is what many people don't seem to understand. But uh, Bill, let me just ask you this, because I mm-hmm. wanted to get just a brief description from you as to the difference, the different denominations of Islam, Sunni, Shia, and then you even have Sufi. Uh, and then there's even divisions, subdivisions among them. Can you just speak to that very briefly? Right, so Muhammad had... Uh, no sons. He had a daughter named Fatima, and she was married to a son-in-law named Ali. And the followers of Ali are called Shiali or Shiite. And about 10% of Muslims are Shiites. And their leaders are called Sharifs, which means that they are a blood descendant of Muhammad through Fatima. right? And uh, then Muhammad had multiple wives. And his favorite wife was Aisha. She was the one. uh, He had a dream two nights in a row of him marrying the six-year-old daughter of his general, Abu Bakr. And he said, well, you're the prophet. Here she is. And so he consummated it at nine. And she was nine. And she tells in the Hadith that she was at her house in the backyard playing. And uh, her mother had her come in and they took a rag and dipped it in water and washed her face and washed her off. And then the Muslim women uh, said, Allah's blessings and good luck. And she said, the prophet visited me. I was nine years old. Anyway, she became Muhammad's favorite wife. And her father is Abu Bakr. And Abu Bakr fought with Muhammad in every battle. And so he said, I know the way. And so the way in Arabic is Sunnah. And so Abu Bakr became the first caliph. 
the first rightly guided caliph. And, uh, and then he was killed. And then you had another uh, caliph, um, uh, you know, uh, Umar, and he conquered. Mm-hmm. And then a caliph Uthman. And then he conquered. And then, and then a, a, you know, all these different caliphs. But one of the, uh, the son of Ali and Fatima is named Hussein. And Hussein was murdered by one of the Sunnis. And so they became at odds with each other. Uh, And so about 90% of the Muslims are Sunni. They're less organized than if you were to contrast it. The uh, Shiite are more authoritative and their head is the Ayatollah. He's like Mm -hmm. the Pope and it's very top-down. Uh, the Sunni, there's a whole range, a whole spectrum, and it depends on your local imam. And some of them are more moderate, and some of them are, you know, more fundamental. Now, and where, where, where would the Taliban fall into this? Where they're they're Sunnis, the right? Taliban? So this is where it gets different. So both of mm-hmm. them have fundamental radical sides. So we're trying mm-hmm. to think well, which one's radical, which one's both of them have radicals and moderate moderates. Okay, um, and so. Uh, the Iranians, uh, they get, uh, matter of fact, when Hussein, the son of Fatima and Ali, was murdered, the Shiites want to keep the hate alive. Uh, they have this concept that you have to, uh, if, if you've had wrong done to you, you have to regain your honor by attacking back. And so uh, they, uh, the Shiites once a year would have a festival called Ashura where they would all get together and uh, whip their backs and take knives and cut their foreheads and bleed and have their little sons in their arms and cut their foreheads and bleed. And, and, and they would gather in a circle and they would moan and groan, sort of in a, a reverse pep rally. And they would stir up this emotion of, of hate against the, the Sunni for having killed Hussein. And so that's how they've mm. been successful in keeping the hate alive between the Sunni and Shia for these 1,400 some odd years. Um, it's obviously different than Christianity, where you forgive your, your enemies. Right. And um, so the um, uh, the they had, did have uh, Ali for a brief period of time was the combined uh, leader of the Sunni and the Shia. But then he didn't kill the people that killed the the previous um, caliph, and so he was killed. Um, and you know, there's the stories of the. The the, uh, the enemy had put Quran verses on a piece of paper and they were charging at him and the the his his soldiers didn't want to fight because they might hit a verse of the Quran and so anyway um, but that first century of of Islam uh, you read about these ca- uh, caliphs getting assassinated and poisoned I mean Muhammad died by being poisoned by one of his wives and right. um, you know when some of his other men died and he got ill but he didn't die and they find out that she was the one that poisoned. She said, I was just testing to see if you were really the prophet. Right? Um, <laughs> but but you read it, it, it sort of reads like the Sopranos. I mean, it's like the 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 Cosa Nostra, the, the family, right? It's, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. the father-in-law being murdered by another son-in-law and the killings and the back and forth, back and forth. And um Isn't so, it interesting that sex, money, and power is at the core of this when you think about it? Uh yeah, with, yeah it's with an Muhammad interesting and, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. An interesting cocktail of motivations. Uh, so right. uh, if, if you die in, if you fight in jihad, you can come away with some extra women. 
you know, booty. And if you die in jihad, you go to a sex party with 72 virgins. And so we think of martyr as more of a, you know, self-denying type thing. They think of martyr as you're going to get rewarded uh, in a sensual, sensual way. So it's, it's like a gang dynamic to it. You do it so the, the Taliban, leaders. yeah, the, the Taliban then have their own gang leader, uh, their own leader, uh, they're Sunnis. And why are they different? How are they different from, say, a, a moderate Muslim that you might, might, might be your neighbor? How, why, why are they so radically different in their beliefs, Bill? Um, well, the, uh, 1928 is when the Muslim Brotherhood was started in, in, in Egypt. And with the, uh, so that's 10 years before oil was discovered. And, mm-hmm. and then a uh, little World War I history for those that are uh, concerned. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was falling apart. Uh, they lived off, they weren't in a hurry to make the conquered people become Muslims because when they became Muslims, they didn't pay taxes anymore. And so the Christian uh-huh. minorities would have to ransom their life once a year, like a protection money, like Chicago, the gang would come by and say, you got to pay this protection money or we're not going to protect you. And so these Christians would have to pay it. But over the centuries, there would be fewer and fewer paying it. And so the Ottoman Empire got weakened and weakened. And then... Uh, the uh, different countries like Britain would begin to encroach into some France and Italy and Russia. They began to encroach on it, and even Napoleon invaded Egypt, you know, in 1798. And um, and so, if it would have gone its course, the Ottoman Empire would have more or less dissolved. But oil was discovered. So in the early 1800s, oil came from Wales. They would have whaling ships going around the world chasing these whales to the point of extinction. But then in 19, I think 47, the Drake oil well was discovered in um, Pennsylvania. And then shortly after, you had uh, oil discovered in Oklahoma. And then shortly after, you had oil discovered in the Middle East. And so Britain had no oil fields. And when Winston Churchill changed the British Navy from coal to oil, and the British really didn't have any oil fields, so in 1908, Britain formed the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. You know it better as BP. Mm-hmm. And then the Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany industrialized and had his U-boats and everything, but he needed a lot of oil and Germany didn't have any oil fields. And so he made a treaty with the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, uh, Abdul Hamid II. And so uh, they had a Berlin-Baghdad railroad that they were building. And remember the movie Lawrence of Arabia and they're blowing up the railroad? Well, that's this Berlin-Baghdad railroad. And so you had, in Europe, you had Germany you know, against Britain. But in the Middle East, uh, you had the, the uh, Persian-Iranian against the Turkish Ottoman. And so half of World War I took place in the Middle East. After the war, the... Uh, map of Europe was redrawn and the map of the Middle East was redrawn. No more Ottoman Empire. And mm-hmm. so the British and the French and a little bit of the Russians and you know Italian, they, they began to try to divide up what was left of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, France was going to take Syria and Lebanon. Uh, Italy was going to take a part of the Turkey and the Armenia was going to take back a part of Turkey because it used to be theirs. Uh, and Britain took over all of the uh, area of Palestine, but it was Mm -hmm. from the Holy Land all the way to Iraq and then all of Egypt. And the uh, Lawrence of Arabia, I mentioned him, 
uh, he sort of threw a monkey wrench into these plans of redrawing the map. He was a lieutenant in the British Army, and he was sent on an assignment to just check to see if it was possible to get these Arab Muslims to join the British to fight the Turkish Muslims. And instead of just reporting back, he took it upon himself to promise these Arabs that if they helped the British, they would get all the land in the Middle East. Mm. And he wrote a book later called The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And he says, um, basically, I risk the fraud on the uh, belief that a quick and speedy victory, we needed the Arabs' help and better to lie and win than to keep our word and lose. And so he he knew he was lying to these Arabs, promising that they would get the land in the Middle East if they helped the British. But that's the claim that the Palestinians stand upon to say that they deserve the land in the Middle East. Mm. Uh, this this, this uh, uh, unauthorized promise by Lawrence of Arabia. Anyway, so Britain uh, has Egypt and then has the area of um, the Middle East and in Iraq. And uh, they, um, Winston Churchill is in charge uh, of the foreign policy here with Lord Balfour. And so the Sharif that worked with Lawrence of Arabia, uh, Al Hashimi, uh, he had a son named Fazl. And Fazl gets, Winston Churchill basically makes Fazl the king of uh, Lebanon. Assyria and Iraq. And uh, Fazl goes to the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, and he actually welcomes the Jews back to the Middle East, you know, to their part of it. And in the movie of Lawrence of Arabia, Fazl is played by Alex Guinness. I just think that's a, mm-hmm. he's a great Alex actor. Guinness, yeah. mm-hmm. um, so, uh, so you have Fazl, but then France was supposed to get Syria, and they end up getting off on the wrong foot with Fazl. And it begins to break out into to another war between Fazl's Arab followers and France, which is supposed to be the protector protectorate of Lebanon and Syria. And so to avert another war, Britain uh, uh, decides to um, come in and, and offer a solution. So uh, focusing on the British area, the British have all of the, the Holy Land and Iraq and they um, what? Uh, they have a chemist that helped them during the war. His name was Chaim Wiseman, a Russian Jew, and he's in England. And during the war, the British were running out of explosives. This is pretty significant. Sort of like during World War II, Japan was running out of gasoline and they were mm-hmm. taking pine trees down and trying to get you know oil out of the roots of the pine tree. Britain didn't have any, they were running out of explosives because their way of making it was very time consuming. And this chemist, Chaim Wiseman, came up with a bacterial fermentation process to synthesize acetone. They would take breweries and turn them into making acetone, which was a very important ingredient in making explosives. So now Britain had an unlimited amount of explosives that helped them win the war, of course, with America's help. And um, after the war, Lord Balfour went to Chaim Wiseman and said, hey, we want to be grateful to you. We want to make you a sir. We want to knight you. And he goes, no, no, no. I was really wanting a, a homeland for these you know, displaced Jews um, over the centuries. And 
And he said, what about Uganda? The British control Uganda, we can give you that. He goes, no, 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 I was sort of thinking of the traditional area. Right? Mm-hmm. And so he goes, oh, sure, yeah. So in 1918, you know, 17, 18, they, they gave the Jews the Balfour Declaration. And again, yeah. it was all the land from the Mediterranean over to Iraq and Syria down to Egypt and Arabia. It was huge. Uh, so, so that was theirs. Uh, but when Fazel and France was about to break into another war, Britain steps in and says, tell you what, we'll chop half of what we gave to Israel and the eastern half we'll we'll call Transjordan or on the other side of the Jordan River Mm -hmm. and we'll put Al-Hashimi's other son, Abdullah, in charge of it. And so we have, uh, so the... The al-Hashimi that worked with Lawrence of Arabia, his two sons, Fazl is now king of basically Syria, and then uh, the Abdullah's the king of Jordan. All right, hold, hold yeah. a thought here for a second, Bill, because I do want to get to the Constitution, but you're giving us such a great background on how the world is what it is now, but we're running out of time, and uh, so... If you want to go further in this, ladies and gentlemen, Bill's book is called What Every American Needs to Know About the Quran, A History of Islam and the United States. So we can sense here there's conflict coming up. These subdivisions of the Sunnis, Taliban being one of them, uh, how do they, why are they different from the moderate Muslims? And specifically, how does the Taliban disagree with the United States Constitution? Yeah, um, so I apologize for going on rabbit trails, but uh, no, it's good. I love it. I just want you to go, but I'm looking at the clock going. We got like eight minutes, so we got to cover this. Go. Okay, so Alashimi in in uh, Arabia waffles on some treaties with the British, and the British stand back. And there's another guy getting started in um, uh, uh, Arabia. His name was Saud, the Saud family, mm-hmm. Aziz. Yep. And so Arabia. the British stand back and basically let the Saudis take over Arabia. And the Saudis are Wahhabis. Even Lawrence of Arabia said these Wahhabis are, uh, they're like puritanical and, and everything is strict and they chop off heads and arms and so forth. And, and so again, so the Saudis end up taking over all of Arabia. But Arabia is just a mountain of sand. There's really nothing there. And so it's no big deal in 1928. But uh, then 1938, uh, John D. Rockefeller's company, Standard Oil, discovers oil in Saudi Arabia. And boom. They go from the poorest Muslim country, the most backwards, to the richest. And so all these other countries had been becoming westernized. There's pictures of Ataturk, the George Washington of the Republic of Turkey. So Ataturk, he's dressing in Western clothes, looks like a Hollywood movie star. And and then, you know, Fazl, there's pictures of him with British suits on. And and the head of Egypt was Gamal Nasser. And and he's dressed in Western clothes with all of his families. And there's pictures of the coast of Egypt looking like Southern California and the Beach Boys. I mean, with the women in swimming suits. And and so they're all Westernizing. They think that's the future. That's the future. Uh, But then when Saudi Arabia gets so rich so fast, uh, they said, well, maybe we should be like them. And so Saudi Arabia begins to fund these Wahhabi groups and they branch off into the Muslim Brotherhood, the Boko Haram, the ISIS, the Taliban, the, uh, Bo- the you know, uh, Al Shabaab, all these different mm-hmm, fundamentalist mm-hmm. groups. So fundamentalism, fundamentalism gets a shot of adrenaline because the Standard Oil right. Company discovering oil in Saudi Arabia. Wow. And now they break off into groups. Um, some are Shiite and some are Sunni. 
um, the Iran is Shiite, um, and uh, and then these other ones are, are Sunni. But um, anyway, they, they both hate Israel. They both hate America and the West. When the West shows itself strong, like when President Trump was in, they're like, okay, we're, maybe we'll have to do it all later. Um, but when the West shows itself weak, they go, hey, maybe it's supposed to happen now. But as far as the comparison of the the, the two if you say, well, Christians kill people, Muslims kill people, every religion has crazies that kill people, uh, you sort of, you can't make a decent comparison. What I say is, forget the followers, let's look at the founders. Mm-hmm. Jesus never killed anybody. Muhammad right. killed an estimated 3,000 people. Jesus never led armies. Muhammad led armies. Jesus never owned slaves. Muhammad owned slaves. Jesus never married. Muhammad had anywhere from 11 to 22 wives. Jesus never tortured anybody. Muhammad, when he conquered Kaibar, this one city, the chief wouldn't tell where the treasure was hidden, and Muhammad had him stretched out on the ground, and they kindled a fire on his chest. Uh, Jesus didn't lie. He said, Satan's the father of liars. Muhammad permitted lying. If you feel threatened uh, by an infidel, you can lie to them. Um, And then uh, Jesus didn't force anybody to follow him. And if you, there's one uh, chapter where he multiplied loaves and fishes and has a crowd following him for a free lunch, wanting to make him king. And he says something difficult, almost intentionally, to shake away those following him for the wrong earthly reasons. Uh, but uh, Muhammad, he said, whoever changes his Islamic religion, kill him. Um, hmm. Jesus uh, never avenged insults. They're mocking him, spitting on him. Uh, Muhammad, there was a guy who had some slave girls, and he made up poems making fun of Muhammad. And when Muhammad conquered Mecca, has a list of people to kill, sort of like we handed the Taliban a list, right? And this list of people had this one guy and his three slave girls to be murdered because they made up these poems insulting Muhammad. Jesus never permitted his apostles to rape anyone. Duh, Muhammad did, right? And there's always hadiths that talk about how to do it, you know, that you're not supposed to stop short of getting them pregnant because if Allah wills for someone to come into the world, they must come into the world and so forth. Uh, None of the apostles were governors or generals. Every one of the caliphs was a governor and a general. Uh, Jesus taught God was our father. In Islam, it's blasphemy to call Allah your father. Jesus taught that we're children of God. In Islam, Allah has no children. He took no wife. He has no son. Um, Jesus um, taught that uh, we're made in the image of God. In Islam, Allah has no image. Jesus taught to have a personal relationship with God. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that you may know God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In Islam, it's blasphemy to even want to have a personal relationship with Allah. He is forever unknowable. Even in the next life, you will never know Allah. The first three centuries of Christianity, there were 10 major persecutions. Christians were thrown to the lions. They never led an armed resistance against the Roman emperor. First three centuries of Islam, they conquer from Arabia to Paris. They wipe out Christianity in North Africa. They wipe out Christianity in the Middle East. And then they, the Turks convert and they conquer what is today Turkey. All seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were wiped out by the Seljuk Turks and then the Ottoman Turks. And when the Turks conquer Constantinople, and of course there's the, the Greek Christians beg the West for help. The West send help for a century or two called the Crusades. I kept the battle on their soil. But when the Crusades ended, they picked up where they left off and they uh, surrounded Vienna, Austria, or Constantinople, 1453. And when they conquered Constantinople, cut off the land routes to India. And that's when Columbus set sail in 1492 to look for a sea route. So all those people that hate Columbus need to turn one chapter back in their history book and see the reason he set sail in the first place was 40 years earlier, Mammoth II conquered Constantinople, cutting off the land routes to India. And that's when he set sail looking for a sea route. And then they conquered into Europe and surrounded Vienna, Austria twice, and so forth. Um, but that, that's the 
the history um, that whenever they uh, see the West weak, they take that as Allah's indicator to them that they are supposed to attack. And whenever the West shows, the non-Muslim world shows itself strong, that's when they go into remission and wait. So, Bill, you put out a wonderful email that really gave me the idea to do this program. And uh, it was the 22nd of August. We'll, we'll post a link to it at the bottom of this show. And you go through every single amendment to the United States Constitution and point out that the Taliban and radical Islam is opposed on every front. So, Bill... How could a four-star general or any rational person in our society somehow equate any supporters of uh, President Trump or even President Biden in this particular country to the Taliban? How do people, how can they be so ignorant, especially a guy who headed the CIA and NSA to say such a thing? Well, it's a political strategy called projection, psychological projection, where you blame your opponent of what you're guilty of. Um, the uh, Sigmund Freud coined the term where rude people denying themselves a negative quality yet attribute that exact quality to someone else. Uh, so the, it's gotten into politics. Uh, David Axelrod was Obama's campaign manager. And he said, in Chicago politics, we have a tradition where you throw a brick through your own campaign office window and then call a press conference to accuse your opponent. Right. You mm. do the crime. So Hillary colluded with Russia. What did she do? She paid for a steel dossier to accuse her opponent of colluding with Russia. Biden extorted the Ukraine. What does he do? He accuses Trump of extorting the Ukraine. And, and so what, what Hayden's doing is he's accusing the innocent people of what the guilty people are guilty of. And um, uh, so, but I do want to throw out one thing, um, is that we got just the a comparison minute. No, between Islam and Christianity. Uh, mm -hmm. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to, to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted. There's no concept in Islam of Allah wanting to heal your broken heart. Allah could care less about your heart. He wants submission. And so when people go to Muslims and say, God loves you and he wants to heal your broken heart and you pray for them and they feel the presence of the Lord and they're touched, uh, this is an important distinction between these two. Amazing. I, I just love listening to you go through that, Bill. Thank you so much. That's Bill Federer, his website. You need to sign up for his email, AmericanMinute.com. AmericanMinute.com. Get his book, What Every American Needs to Know About the Quran. It's a great pleasure having Bill on. Thank you so much, Bill. Don't forget, I'm in California this weekend if you can make it. Check out our website for more, crossexamine.org. And Why Does God Allow Evil online course this week. God bless.